Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch with Legs. Legs Malone here wishing you a grand and sweet hello wherever in the world this podcast might be finding your ears. It is a beautiful yet cloudy day here in Brooklyn as I'm recording this. I am actually also just about to fly out to Seattle, Washington. I'm getting this in right under the line uh, for the amazing uh, BurleyCon. I see the amazing BurleyCon. There is only one. Uh, And I am very much looking forward to doing an episode on it very soon. I am hoping that I'll be able to post our next episode about BurleyCon, but... Trust, if I don't, that I will be doing so soon. BurleyCon is the only convention of its kind in that it is a burlesque educational convention, and I am very fortunate to be returning for the fourth or fifth time uh, teaching. So I'm super excited. Uh, if you want to learn more about it, go to burleycon.org. And before we dive into this week's podcast, I also want to give a shout-out to our wonderful past guest, Esme Carino. She leads full and new moon circles here in Brooklyn. Yeah, I should say hippie alert, hippie alert. (laughs) And I know there's a lot going on in a lot of people's lives right now, and there's some very powerful astrology happening. So if anybody out there wants some healing done, or if you would like to mark the passage of both the new and the full moons with Esme, she does these ceremonies in Brooklyn, uh, both where she lives in, uh, where is it? Leopard, Utica, Leopard's Gardens, uh, very, very close to the subway, and also in Prospect Park here in Brooklyn. So for more information on those gatherings and to sign up for her mailing list, please, please, please go to thevisionandthevoice.com. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited to bring this week's guest to you. My dear sweet friend Gabrielle Penabaz joined me several days ago to talk about all things creative and magical and mystical and kitchen witchery and oh, all good, beautiful things. The interview could have gone on for so much longer, but I'm so happy with what we did manage to commit to recorded word, and I am so, so, so excited to share her wealth of experience and knowledge and information with you. She is, man, if she was a cat, you know, cats have nine lives. She's had like 27 lives. Uh, clearly none of them as, I'm, you know what? Screw that. I'm not going to go down the road. (laughs) I'm just going to say she is a woman who wears so many fashionable hats, and I'm so excited for you to hear our interview. So without further ado, I'm not going to waste a single moment, uh, apart from saying, hey, if you like the podcast, donate on our website, lunchwithlegs.com. All donations are welcome, and over a certain amount, I will happily do a commercial for you, or hey, even invite on a guest of your choosing. So don't be a stranger. (sighs) Okay, deep breath. I'm so excited to bring this next guest on. So go ahead, pull up a chair, get nice and comfortable, pour yourself a cup of something good, and get ready for this week's wonderful guest, the fabulous Gabrielle Penabaz. Gabrielle Penabaz, how are you? Good, good. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for being a guest on today's episode of Lunch with Legs. (laughs) (laughs) We are currently lunchless, I know. It's a metaphorical kind of lunch. (laughs) Lunch for your mind and your ears. Food for thought. Yes. Thank you. That should be the tagline of the podcast. Food for thought. Um, How are you doing? What's new? Um, The newest thing is um, I'm hosting Radical Vaudeville. Oh. Once a month, and it's been at the Crane Theater over on 4th Street, uh, between 2nd and 3rd in that same building as KGB Bar. Mm-hmm. And it's been interesting switching to hosting from the other stuff I've done. And it's an interesting journey, and it also connects me to lots of performers. And mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love how you say, like, the other stuff I've done. I mean, like, I could think of a laundry list of things that you have done, certainly within, just alone in the performance world. I mean performer, producer, host, creator, filmmaker. Um, I mean, I was extremely fortunate to see one of your sex crime cabaret shows. God, when was that? It was down in Tribeca. It must have mm-hmm. been like three, four years ago. Um, and it blew my mind. It absolutely blew my mind. I love that. So it's. I'm really happy to hear you are making regular appearances again in downtown theater. Um, but, uh, I mean... 
can you say, tell a little bit, not just about the show that you're going to be hosting, or that you are hosting Radical Vaudeville, but a little bit about, I mean, I have so many questions I want to ask you, um, but even about like your path in performance in New York City, I mean, how you got to right here, and even speaking a little bit about your past performance, you know, experience, your journey. My journey. journey. My journey began in Miami, Florida, <laughs> when I realized I could not sing, but I loved music very, very much. And so I became a, a dancer, and I studied mm -hmm. ballet, modern, and jazz. And uh, back in the 70s and 80s, <laughs> um, if you can remember or, or perhaps have been educated to know about things like flash dance, mm -hmm. were very strong cultural um, forces. And at, at the very dawn of music videos being a big thing uh, and, and leading to MTV, modern dance was a big deal and considered very sexy and fun and interesting and, and a great way to create theater and motion and, and, and make more than just do a choreographed dance and create little worlds. And I love creating a world. And I was making Super 8 films as a teenager, but they were so expensive. So I focused more on live. And, but I loved it, so I came to NYU to be a filmmaker until I learned how much it cost back oh, in the day God. because people weren't really making videos on video back then. And, and even Super 8 is exorbitant after a while. Um, and so there was a combination of that. I really enjoyed acting. But when you're in school, you go up for a role and you get it, and it's a closed environment, and, and that's all easy. When you come to a big city, um, suddenly it's a much harsher environment. And the first thing I was told was that I looked too Latina mm. and that the only roles I would ever get would be like Pizza Girl number two. And... It just didn't sound like much fun. And the scripts in general aren't great for women. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, I want to do something. I want to create these little worlds. And it occurred to me to be a singer-songwriter, much to my mother's chagrin. <laughs> because I like writing. And I like, like I said, you know, creating these, these things. And I, and I love music. And um, so I thought, oh, I could be in a band and make music videos. So I went on this crazy journey of doing my 10,000 hours with vocal coaches until I landed a record deal and I got reviews refer referring to me as a diva, which was an incredible moment. Oh my gosh. That doesn't mean they were hit records necessarily, but they were songs that people liked and I, and I did fairly well with it. But the band thing is also really hard. Even though, unlike an actor who has to wait for a script, it, it, there's a lot of immediate satisfaction in it. You can write a song and perform it immediately. You can book yourself within a week or a couple months and have a pretty cool show. And you could do lots of stuff. Um, it's instant theater. Mm -hmm. And as video became easier to make, I started to incorporate that more and more. Anyway, I got tired of trying to keep bands together, and I gave up. And in the middle of all this, I, was all, I also had all these weird little jobs that always accommodated band rehearsals. So I was working as uh, a sh at a chauffeur company as a receptionist, and I also worked at a clown company as the office manager. Oh, my God. And we would often put events together and stuff for clients. So I got really good at a bunch of different things. I had been a temp for a while. I didn't know what to get my degree in anymore. I ended up just getting comparative lit. So I figured I would strengthen my languages in English, Spanish, and French. This is all coming to a point, I promise. <laughs> I and so, <laughs> so I got my degree, and I graduated summa cum laude and all that. And that was very nice, but it didn't lead to a job. So um, I started to get bored with all of it, not knowing what to do, and I was frustrated. And this one clown led me to mother. He was gay as a party hat, bless him. <laughs> and, um, and I get there and I'm like, oh, I like this. It was in, in the 90s already at that point. And you're talking about the party mother. The nightclub mother the that nightclub. had several evenings, the most famous of which yes. was Jackie 60. Yes. Right. So, um, but then I also loved click and drag and I loved uh, Long Black Veil, which was the vampire night. And that was around the time that the goth scene was blowing up as pre-Matrix. And so in the middle of all this, I, it, Halloween was coming up, and I said, I'm going to get fangs. I don't know why. I just need fangs. They're out of my price range, but I don't care. And I nearly lost my, my, my chauffeur job because there was a line around the block, and I was late for work, and I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to get my 
fangs. So, so I, as I'm getting my fangs, I say to these guys, um, so kind of a shame I won't be able to wear these very often. They're like, oh no, we, we do a role-playing game at Mother. Oh, okay. So I get to know these guys. I book my I book a band there that I'm that I'm performing with. The band ends up disintegrating, but at least I have this new scene and I'm kind of you know hanging out there. And I get to be friends with this one guy, and we end up doing this huge vampire event in New Orleans. Oh and Chi-Chi my from God. Mother was hosting. A thousand people showed up. We managed to do this huge thing, and at the end of it, Chi-Chi said, "I will give you a job at Mother." Wow. If you can do this in New Orleans and you've never been here, you can do anything. You know, I've got something for you at Mother. So next thing I know, I'm kind of depressed. I don't have a band, but she puts me with Michael T for this 80s night called Heroes, which was which was the black sheep of all the nights. It was kind of they would all sort of sigh and go, oh, Heroes. So <laughs> they, they would disagree now because time softens things. But at the time, it was like it needs something Gabrielle come in and do something so I don't know so I started working with Michael and we and we made some changes and we made it a really fun night and because uh, it was sort of up and down it's hard to get people out on a Wednesday night okay mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. once a month and uh, and I said to Michael I said Michael we're hiring these drag queens would it be okay if I just sang a song or something like if it's okay if I'm in a gown do I have to be genetically male he said no just be fabulous so I realized that these drag queens were getting more money than my band to sing one song, mm. sometimes to lip sync. In the middle of all this, this is how Saint Eve was created. It's a much longer story to find out where the name came from, but it was it was connected to the vampire thing. Um, okay, I'll be brief. Basically, I was afraid of being known while, while I was doing the vampire event because it was so messy in the beginning before it was a success. And so I was Eve, short for events, Mistress Eve. Oh, my God. And at the end of it, my friend said, oh, girl, you're Saint Eve. And I said, oh, that's a good name. So so I decided to just use Saint Eve. So I used it for the performance. So oh I started doing performance art with a backing track. And I started making all the music myself where I would just maybe have friends help me, but it wasn't like a steady band thing. So then because I'd learned French and I knew Spanish, and I was good at making videos. I started to videotape everything I did at Mother, and I started sending little quick-time videos to clubs overseas, and that's how I toured Europe. And wow. so as I toured Europe, I gathered more video. And as I needed more video, and at that, originally I was doing it in the most basic sort of way, a lot of two VHS kind of thing, then I ended up having to learn video editing, and then people started hiring me for video editing. Then I ended up touring as a VJ. Oh, my God. Right. And that my friend said, come tour with my VJ crew. I said, okay, great. So then I learned how to do all that, and I started getting video editing gigs and shooting gigs. So then I, at that point, I was really tired of how bands get treated. And, and as a performance artist who sang, I managed to get better treatment and really cool gigs. But I was also alone, or sometimes I'd get dancers locally. Um, so... St. Eve would perform all over the place, but I never made enough money. It never turned into a real career. It never, it never got big. Mm-hmm. It's, it just sort of managed and was fun and was interesting, and I got to travel and perform for beautiful audiences and sometimes very large audiences. And sometimes, like, like in Paris, these kids all showed up very passionately because I guess it was promoted to death by this wonderful promoter, and they knew the lyrics to my songs and would wow. sing them to me in the front row like, Woo! So I got those experiences. They're wonderful, but I never really made a living. So came back to New York, and and then again you get this feeling that you they really would prefer the DJ be on, and you'd work really hard on making a beautiful show and hiring m- musicians, and you'd have video, and the whole thing was really a strong show, and they'd be like, well. Make sure it's not more than half an hour. I'm like, I promise you, it's only 28 minutes. I can't make it longer than 28 minutes because that's as long as the video is. You know, I would try to explain this to them, but they would just be so rude. Mm-hmm. Then when everybody loved it, they'd be like, oh, that was great. I was like, well, why didn't you just give me a slightly longer sound check? Come on. So finally I said, okay, I'm going to theater. So I brought rock and roll to the theater, and that's when I started to create the sex crimes cabaret mm-hmm. stuff. So then I brought rock and roll with a concept and stories and a bunch of short films that I made and that's where I piled up all the stuff that I had made and the songs and I sang and I mixed it all together and created this cohesive unit. 
The problem with sex crimes cabaret so far has been that it's kind of too naughty and too intellectual for the mainstream so far, unless somebody would like to see my reel and maybe... Oh, I think it was brilliant. I loved it. People really loved it. Um, but when I've brought it around, and I don't know that many people, and I haven't brought it around to that many people, when I brought it around to TV so far, they're like, well, I'm not quite sure where we'd put it because it's not quite a documentary and it's not just a variety show. And it's sort of like a segment on the daily show Gone Wild. <laughs> um, so uh, because it's very informative, very accurately researched, but it's completely wacky. And um, so, so that's fun. I, and then in the middle of all this, I also developed a one-on-one -on -one performance art piece where I marry people to themselves. Oh, wow. Called Till Death Do You Part. Marry yourself. And then that actually requires host guides. And I've done that... Um, I've done it in London, New Orleans, New York. Um, and and I'm tr I might be doing it in Las Vegas. We'll see if that works oh out. Oh, my gosh. That'll be super fun because it's actually based on a Las Vegas chapel kind of concept. It's very irreverent. You come in, you fill out multiple choice vows, or you can write your own. Um, <laughs> you get you get uh, judged up by by host guides, and then you get a, a choice of crazy bouquet, which could be flowers or it could be a sword, whatever. There's all kinds of stuff. And then you come into this back room, and then you hand the priestess, me, your vows to read into your ears so you don't have to memorize them. And then you say them into a mirror, and I make sure that you're not looking at the curtains. Oh, my God. So no matter how wacky you choose your vows to be, some, they're often quite heavy, actually. But they're, they're phrased like, I will kick my own ass when I need it. You know, it's, it's a lot of sort of inspiring stuff. But you can write whatever you want. No matter what it is, even if it's, I will eat chocolate cake every day, or whatever you feel like saying, there's something about saying it into the mirror. That's so powerful. That is so powerful. And so I've married over a thousand people to themselves. Oh my gosh. And so that's been this whole other thing that's been really interesting um, that uh, keeps coming up and I keep doing it in different situations and I get asked to do that. What up, priestess? <laughs> right? And so my website is encouragingpriestess.com oh for, for that project. Um, and so, so I do all these different things, but they're all based on different experiences and different things. The marry yourself thing... Uh, came about because I was helping a friend of mine, Nicole Blackman, with a piece she was doing for the Fierce Festival in in England, in Birmingham. And I helped her. I, I made some short films for her, and we put together this beautiful experience that you would go through a whole house, and she had little experiences set up for you all over the house. Anyway, I helped her with that, and they had a contest the following year and I think they pretty much chose local people, but I tried anyway, and when I developed it, I thought, I'm just gonna do it. So that's where that happened, but it was because of the filmmaking and the other stuff I've done that she thought to hire me that then connected me to them, that then gave me the idea. You know, see how it all goes? It's all because I got fangs at some point. <laughs> so, um, it, it all kind of goes back to the fangs, really, <laughs> to be honest, fangs and clowns. Wow. Fanged clowns. Born of fangs and clowns. There you go. That's my that's my bio. Wow. And so here I am today kind of figuring it all out. I also read tarot cards because I just love I love other world kind of concepts and so I decided to to read tarot cards when I was uh, a wee child. Um, and so I've been doing that for years and that's also something that's fed into the priestess thing. I I like one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. experiences. And tarot to me is really just flashcards for the intuition. Mm, I just help you quiet nice your mind. It. Yeah, it's, it, there's really not much juju that goes on there. It's intuition and stopping and quieting your mind. And a really good tarot reading should never be that surprising, unless you're totally clueless. God help you. Um, we all have those moments, right? So we go to a tarot card reader who's like, oh, girl, you'll be fine. Get rid of that thing that you're doing or whatever. Um, so... So that's it. That's I do all these different things, and I need to focus. And so the irony of all this is that I really wanted to be an actor, I guess, when I first came to the city. Remember they told me that like, I look too Latina. Now it seems like it's okay to be an older person who is of mixed ethnicity. So I may have found my moment. Wow. So who knows? Maybe I should, uh, should go out and get some acting work. In the meantime, I've been doing a lot of voiceovers. You had mentioned this before, yeah, I mean, before prior to the recording. Which 
which occurred to me because I know how to record myself learning that from having been in a band from recording our songs. So so I have that and the sequencing for audio is also what led me to video editing because they're really very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, thanks. No worries. <laughs> it's one of the joys of living in New York City in autumn is sometimes one gets a runny nose. <laughs> so thank you for Legs has just Lex has just reached for a tissue. <laughs> She's very beautifully reaching. Work that voiceover skill. Um, thank you. Um, it's. It, I love how. I love the confluence of everything that you've done in your life. How it's brought you to the here and the now. I mean, that's what it does for all of us. And I think a lot of people can feel like they've had completely different chapters in their life. You know, and there's no, there doesn't seem to be any thread running through it that may connect them to where they are now. But, I mean, I, I think that's not true. I think you know everything leads to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. And you just sound like you've been so connected with your own work for so long. I mean, it makes perfect sense that stuff's coming around so full circle in that way. It's a mentality. Like I really hate leftovers being uh, abandoned. I really think mm-hmm. they can be incorporated into a new dish. <laughs> Girl, I hear you. I hear you. So it's kind of like that. It's like, oh, I can record things. I can't just throw that away. There must be something else I can do with this skill. And so voiceovers have been good. And then that's made me feel like, well, that's just acting without having to put on makeup. So so maybe I should just go out for acting. And the, and, and it, it, the reason it even occurred to me was not because I'm sitting there doing voiceovers going, well, I should put some makeup on. <laughs> but actually a friend called out of the blue and knows that I'm just game. And was like, do you want to be in our film? I said, yes. And I really had fun with it. Amazing. It's called Revo. And um, it, it, I hope I, I'm not ruining anything. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a movie about sexual suicide bombers. And I pay, yes. Not Whoa. to give anyone any ideas. No one should do this. It's fiction. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And I play a uh, I play a naughty housewife. From Boy, that's going to be Jersey. a stretch for you. From New Jersey. Okay, fine. From New Jersey, that's Whatever. a stretch. Right. <laughs> no, but it was really it was just really fun to oh, put wonderful. on silly outfits and be in a hotel or this or that. And uh, it's not like I'm even doing anything particularly sexual. It's it's actually all filmed pretty nicely in a in a way that I didn't feel compromised. Mm. Um, I suppose in the right environment, I would just go balls out crazy naked, you know, for, I don't know, Terry Gilliam or something. I don't know. But I'm, I'm still kind of shy about the whole thing. I And, and, and we'll see. Like, I, I think real actors don't care. Their body's just their instrument. So we'll see. I like acting. I, I think I can interpret material. Mm. I'll leave it at that. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good way of putting it, for sure. Acting is so intimate. I mean, I work with a lot of actors outside of burlesque with, like, breath work and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and they definitely uh, benefit from getting to know themselves and clearing past stuff so that they can be more present for the material so their their own stuff isn't, you know, constantly feeding into it. Although that's then... I mean, my brother went to acting school. He went to NYU. Um, and the whole method thing, you know, like really getting into the emotion, like recalling something from your past and... Mm-hmm. You know, so tears squirt out of your eyes at a certain moment. I don't understand how actors do that. I think it's amazing. I've tried many times. I, acting's not for me. <laughs> In that sense, crying on command. But it's the plumbing of the past. Right, and on call and reliably. Yes, 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 yes. That's the thing like about any professional. Stars. Yes. Male porn stars. Well, I used to do voiceover for porn. No, you didn't. Oh, yeah, for, for Playgirl. Uh, no way. Playgirl had uh, a TV department. They were Playgirl TV. And they would create these really beautiful porn videos, very beautifully shot. They kissed at the end. They were technically for women, but it was marketed that way. But all it meant is that they put some budget behind it, and they made it very physically attractive. And the way that they managed to get it on a lot of cable and around the world was to refer to it as erotica, and it had to have a story. And I was looking for work, and a friend of mine, uh, and I was thinking I'd go as an editor, and my friend said, you know, they need voiceover. And I said, oh, okay. 
And the deal was that they had somebody who was doing the voice, somebody who was writing, and somebody who was engineering. But they didn't know what they were going to do because their budgets were having problems. And I said, uh, I hope I'm not making anybody lose their job here, but I can do all three. And they said, okay, give us a sample. So I did three different kinds of voices, recorded it myself, and instead of just sort of writing a story and hoping that it kind of went with the thing, I said, no, give me the file. They said, give you the file. I said, yeah, just give me the file. So I would start it at zero, even if I didn't start right away, it would just completely line up so they didn't have to figure out where the words should go. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I would, uh, so all they had to do was drop in the audio, and then I would, I was supposed to be the, the thoughts of the girl, I guess. Oh my gosh. When you do 20 a month. 20 a month. You start to have to figure out new ways of dealing with it. You can't just do the thoughts of the girl. You'll go crazy. So occasionally you're a third party and you say them, or occasionally you may decide to do the thoughts of the man, or who knows? It just, I remember after the, fir the first one was the, the, the second one was a little harder, the third one left me in tears. Really? I was like, what am I going to say? What the hell am I going to say? And then I, I was walking around in my robe with my coffee, just, who knows, I probably smoked back then, <laughs> nervous and New York-y about it. And finally I went, well, who's going to tell me I'm wrong? I can say anything I want. What the hell is she thinking? What are you going to tell me? I'm wrong? Mm -hmm. I'm lying? So then I started to have fun with it. And there was like one where this chick was kind of masculine and I decided to give her kind of a weird Spaniard accent. And I decided to say, I used to be a man. Oh! <laughs> <gasps> wow, that's racing for Playgirl. <laughs> well, but who's going to listen? My, my, yeah. my fantasy was that people would watch them in hopes of listening to the story I would concoct. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the mm -hmm. equivalent of reading it for the articles. And so I started to say things just to see if anyone was listening. Because any self-respecting person would probably just turn it all down. But this is the way they managed to sell it. And then I would also line up the words like the script in such a way I like I would do it and then I'd write the script out and then I would put the timing on it so that someone in Malaysia could translate it oh yeah and then just do the lines and it made it much easier for them to translate it all over the world of course so I just love the idea of someone in Malaysia going I have to say this <laughs> <laughs> I am from outer space he used to do my taxes. I mean, I would just like, you wow. just come up with anything. And my, my absolute favorite was one where the acting was not great. And again, beautifully shot. You know, like there was a guy in a car and he's driving. There's a woman and she's looking outside of a beautiful home. She's looking out the window. But this, the way it was edited, she was looking out the window for a long time. So I had to just come up with stuff. And I said, my daughter hasn't come home from school. There's no daughter in this. There's no, there's no child in mm -hmm. this. But she's like, my daughter hasn't come home from school. And I know she's not due for a half hour, but I can't help myself. I just keep looking out the window. I'm so lonely. I haven't been with anybody in years. Oh, look, it's my amnesiac neighbor pulling up. Oh, it's so weird when he does this. Oh, he brought flowers. It's so sad. His wife's been dead for years. Oh, my God. So he shows up, and of course it's awkward, but it's great now. Now their acting is brilliant. Oh, my <laughs> God. And then that gave me stuff to say. Like when she would go down on him, she'd say, he'll never forget this. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew I'd done that a good job when occasionally I'd get an email or a call from the editors going, oh, you really went all out this time. Oh my God, that is amazing. Are any are those videos still available? I don't know if they're playing them. I can personally show you. I, still I, have I would I, that one in particular. I would personally like to see. It's pretty funny because it's otherwise just a man shows up with flowers. I mean, I think what they were trying to go for was maybe he was in the doghouse and so he brought her flowers and they'd broken up, but maybe they're back together now. But I don't know. They just didn't have much chemistry. So I preferred the idea that he's not sure who she is and that she's getting laid. Either way, yeah. Much better. Much oh better God. story. Much more believable. Yeah. It's like, I'm not going to tell him that he lives three doors down. 
like I usually do. Fuck it, I'm just going to do this. <laughs> and then it all made much more sense. Oh, that's genius. How long did you do that for, working for Playgirl? Uh, like a year. Only a year. I mean, but that's a lot. I mean, 22... What? Something like that. It was quite a few some months. And, and then it was just very expensive, and I think they didn't think it was lucrative enough. And there was a lot of identity issue there, because on one hand, I think they had a lot of male, gay male viewers, but they couldn't just be openly gay, huh. which is a shame, because it would have been awesome if they'd been like a bi kind of network that served just all different kinds of sexual tastes yeah. within the parameters of their nudity or whatever. I mean, they were pretty explicit. The only thing they couldn't show was ejaculation. Huh. But if the man was inside, they could show that. And they showed the, all this stuff, and they showed erection. Wow. They showed all this stuff. Um, and, but what apparently made it fly was the story. So it was pretty funny. When I first met my boyfriend, I gave him a link to all the files, and he would play it with a little music over it in the office, and I thought that was pretty funny. Oh, my God. People would occasionally walk by and go, did I just hear? It's like, no. No, it's just music. <laughs> What'd she say? <laughs> what did she just say? What, what was that about an amnesiac neighbor? What? Right. Wow. Well, I... I, I my fantasy, of course, is somebody who goes, oh, I love that one. <laughs> <laughs> that one's my favorite. Oh, that's a good one. Oh Girl's my pretty. God. Whatever, yeah. So I, I, I was trying to explain to somebody what I do for a living, and they said, um, oh, you're a hustler. <laughs> so I Sounds guess, pretty apt. I guess so. I just say yes, and, and I want something to work. I need to make a living, and when something doesn't work, I just do something else. Yeah, what would I mean, I'm never you, out of work, really. Well, God bless that. I, I mean, if somebody were to walk up to you and say, "What do you do for a living?" What would you say? Oh, it's awful. I hate that. It's why I hate parties. Oh. I hate parties because <gasps> people ask me what I do for a living. Rather, they just ask me what I do for fun. That's what I ask other people. Oh, I think that's it's only a great fair. question. It's also it's a very American question. Like, oh, what do you do? It's like, oh, because my job is my identity. Well, but see, what do you do? Actually, could be answered with, "I like skiing." True. Because it really is True just. That. That would be an a opener. hilarious answer. Hey, what do you do? Oh, I love tobogganing. It's the best thing in the but world. But that would be fine because you're getting the conversation moving. Yeah. And that's all that it really means to do. The thing is, is that because we interpret it as a work question, and often the answer when I ask people what they do for fun, they'll say, well, actually work is fun for me, and that's mostly where I focus my energy. And then they, they take it to work, but without the pressure, I guess, of feeling that I've taken them there but people will finally just say so what do you do for money and when they finally ask me that I'm like oh I don't know you're like do you have 15 minutes (laughs) and then the other thing also is I make liquor because in the middle of all all the video blah de blah band stuff I was doing events right it's all mixed in um and it occurred to me to make absinthe because at the time absinthe was illegal and it was interesting and not narcotic or anything. So I was like, oh, okay, I can promote this and nobody will care. And that's true. No, really, I have even did a podcast on the moth. I was just about to say, I listened with great pleasure that when I, back when I, I mean, many computers ago, I subscribed to the moth and when your name popped up and it was talking all about absinthe and the party and it was amazing. I mean, that was back in 2009 that you, 2010? Uh, every, I did everything back then. Yeah. I don't know what I did. I'm trying to think if, if our listeners want to listen to that story, how far back to go in the Moth Archives. It doesn't they can matter. search for your name. I'm the only Penabaz. True that. I'm the only Easy Penabaz. Easy enough to search then. If you can spell Penabaz, you're good. You can find me. <laughs> in fact, the joke that I say that some t- in different situations is, I have, and I'll say my name, and they look at my idea, I said, if I can pronounce it, it must be me. And they laugh. Um... <laughs> So the absence is definitely an interesting journey. I'd like to take it uh, at this point to to be a legal thing. Hmm. And so I've been learning distilling. Wow, how's that going? Good. And I've been getting a lot of pointers from a guy named Angus McDonald who has a distillery that makes rye, and mm. it's called the Copper Sea Distillery. And I don't know if he's moving on from them or what, but he's a brilliant man. And uh, and a lot of other people have, have, have been offering information and whatnot and so I've been distilling alternative gins 
and doing all different kinds of gin being the process of putting the herbs in the column of the still ah. as opposed to boiling it through kind of a thing. So it's more of a scent. Gin is sort of scented in a way. Yeah, it's a very perfumey. Yeah, and that's how you do it. As opposed to soaking the herbs in absinthe, you put the herbs in the column as well as soak after for color and some flavor. Oh, interesting. So it's an interesting process, and it's it's a beautiful thing to get right. And it's kind of like coca. It's like colas. You may like Coca-Cola, you may like Pepsi, but they're all cola. And the same with absinthe. There's a basic concept of what absinthe is, but then there are all these different variations. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I really love that, and I think I'd like to actually take that uh, to a legal level at some point. Absolutely. I, I have a question, and this is just regarding absinthe. What gives, it, it, what gives absinthe its green color? A number of herbs. Oh, okay. Um, hyssop, melissa, which is also called lemon balm. Some people use tarragon. Mm. Tarragon's wonderful. St. George uses a little tarragon. I love that absinthe. I love, uh, the St. George distillery is really quite fun, actually. They're also known... What do they call? Um, they, have another, they have a vodka that they're famous for. But St. George is their brand for the absinthe. And they're in Oakland, and they give a great tour if you ever go through. Mm. They're really fun. Um, hyssop, Melissa, tarragon, peppermint... Um, green herbs, you just throw green stuff in. And you have to be careful because that can add a lot of chlorophyll flavor to it. Oh, interesting. Like a grassy color, lemongrass gives it a light green. Huh. So you add all that stuff together and, and that, therein lies the recipe. Right. Because it also adds flavor, so you have to be careful. Right, right, right. And I know, like, I mean, the thujone, thuzone, whatever the... Thujone, yeah, thujone, that, that's in the which, wormwood. Which is the wormwood, because I remember, God... 14 years ago when I was living in France, I had real absinthe with the wormwood levels, what they were, you know, 100 years ago or something. They weren't that strong, though. Well, I don't know what I had, but <laughs> when I saw the pictures the next day, I, <laughs> I realized that I was probably better off avoiding that stuff forever. <laughs> no, here's the deal with absinthe. Absinthe, all the herbs are uppers and the alcohol is a downer. So when you first drink it, you're not drunk. You feel sociable. You might yeah. feel creative. I felt like queen of the world, and then I saw the photos. Because you drank too much, and it's strong alcohol. Mm. And you should really water it down a lot. A really refreshing absinthe drink has a lot of water and some sugar. Um, I love it with like a margarita-type mix. Like you put fresh lime and lemon. Like you, do the, oh, wow. you can either go mint julep or, mint or, or, or margarita, or even mojito style where you add mint mm -hmm. to the drink. I think it's also delicious when you add coconut. It does this whole other oh, thing. Wow. It's gorgeous, at least with mine anyway. Um, so, And it has a lot of those profiles in it. I use a lot of dried orange peel and, mm. and chocolate and vanilla and stuff. Wow. And you don't even necessarily catch those, but they're there and it rounds it out. And so it does really well with those kinds of mixers, certainly citrusy mixers. And you can add seltzer at the end. A friend of mine made absinthe ice cream with my absinthe. So that's what gave me the idea to add cream and coconut and oh stuff. Oh, my God. So, oh, that's weird. I never thought of it that way, and it was super yummy. So try it with whatever absinthe you have. Wow. And it's, it's, it's just be careful you're drinking more than you realize. That's all. Yeah. Because the thujone, I suppose, might do something, but I don't know that anyone's really proved it. Mm -hmm. It's just that when, they, when Prohibition was looming and finally happened in 1920, right before then, it was a fever pitch fear from all the liquor companies to please not bring prohibition on. Certainly the wine companies were freaking out. And they made absinthe the bad kid on the block. They were selling, I don't know, 36 million liters a year in France. And so it was kind of like, who the hell is this? We've been around forever. We're vineyards. We're cool. You know, the rum and whiskey people were like, mm. so suddenly absinthe became the bad guy. And there was this huge reefer madness style campaign against absinthe. They took it off the shelves in France and here. And nothing changed because, just to briefly, there was a, a huge drought. People weren't drinking as much wine. They turned to hard liquor and drinking it in the volumes that they were. They would drink wine, so they would have a huge glass of rum or something. Jesus. And they were just drinking a lot. And suddenly, you know, people enjoy drinking, and then they then they overdo it, and the asylums were filling up with alcoholics. And what is a classic, real alcohol poisoning feature? But hallucination. There's nothing that makes you hallucinate in absence. Absolutely not. If, if, if absence makes you hallucinate, someone has drugged you. Yeah, someone put something slipped. in your drink that ain't absence. So 
So then prohibition happened, and then by the time it was all overturned, they just didn't bother making absence legal again until the new regulations in the 2000s because of Ted Bro, who's part of Jade Liquor, and he has his own company. I can't oh, wow. remember his other company name. But Ted Bro, B-R-E-A-U-X, he's the champion who made absence legal. Wow. He's very handsome. He, he would be played by Matt Damon. Nice, in a movie. Job. Yeah, he's super sexy. Wow. Beautiful man. Because it, it was my understanding that absinthe, when I had it in France, it was available. But when I moved back to America, it wasn't around. But it wasn't until, and I think it was an FDA thing, mm-hmm. where they had to lower the levels of thuzone. They had to promise that they were at a certain level. But what Ted figured out from looking at the... Um, the estate bottles, that's what he did. He was a, he's a scientist. So he got estate bottles, had them analyzed, and basically recreated them and then adjusted oh, wow. them to his own liking. But they're beautiful sipping absence, usually. Mm. Um, at least the first stuff that I tried from him. His lucid stuff was strange because they, I think they, they tried to adjust it for, quote-unquote, an American palate, whatever that means. So he's been through a lot, but whatever his main company is now, um, I'm sure makes beautiful absinthe. The stuff that he had hidden in New Orleans was really great. Um, and now it's all legal because of his work, and I and I think we all owe something to him. Yeah. All the absinthe makers out there, and so um, and he's written a lot of articles, and he's definitely the go-to guy for information and history and all that mm. kind of stuff. And he's written forwards for books. <clears throat> anyway, so uh, so absinthe is is definitely an interesting an, an interesting thing and has yet to be truly explored. It also comes from a history of drinking an aperitif or aperitivo mm-hmm. before dinner, which Americans don't really do. They might have a cocktail, but th- there's not this concept of, oh, I need something that will help my digestion. It's not really connected to food. Right. We I think we're more British that way. We just drink. Yeah. And then we eat and then we drink some more and then yeah. food absorbs it and whatnot. And I think America's definitely changing. We're getting a lot more foodie. I think normal people know what arugula is. There's a great book called Arugula Nation by a guy named David Camp. It's pretty fun. And we've definitely, I mean, even McDonald's has stuff that they wouldn't have had a long time ago. And So we're, it's all shifting. So I think the time for, for absinthe and absinthe pairings is is here. Absolutely. It's here. You know? how, do, how do you go about, like, approaching it legally? Oh, you just get a micro distiller's license to start, or you get a lot oh, wow. of money and you become a big distiller. But, but I would say the easiest way to do it for if you're a single person is to to try to get a micro distiller's license, and you just have to get a commercial space, uh, fill out a lot of paperwork, and start. Yeah. And and I think the government realized. I'm sorry, I'm twitching. That's fine. <laughs> I don't know if you're talking about. The government realizes that microdistilling, especially if done safely and and you you know you know what you're doing and you're not you're not blowing anything up. Um, it's less it's like brewing is more dangerous. I think that's why it was less regulated. Distilling requires paying attention. Like I think it was Tuttletown had a, had one of their stills blow up. It was on automatic and they walked away from it. No one got hurt. But Goodness. but you need to be careful. So I understand why it's why it's monitored, but. But a microdistiller's license has become relatively easy to get, at least in New York State. And one of the one of the things you need to do is to use New York product. Oh, interesting. Which is why you don't see necessarily New York made rum because we don't really make sugar cane here. I don't know if we make beets here. Maybe you could use beet sugar, but mostly it's rye and whiskeys. That would be beautiful. Beet sugar rum. God, can you imagine the color of that? It. You'd have to put it back in. Oh. Rum, I looked up rum, and and it's apparently what you do to it after. Basically, everything you distill is sort of a vodka. And then it depends on what kind of casks you put it in and things you add in afterwards. Wow. When you distill something fully, you've basically made vodka. Distillation. (laughs) Window. Takes everything out of things. (laughs) So what's interesting about distillation is how much you do make a clean go of it. Mm. Do you do you maybe make it a kind of dirtier run? Like, is it just like it's a copper a bit looser in the column? There's all this kind of wow. Then it adds flavor, less or more flavor, and you adjust it all. Oh my god! It's gosh. an art. It's an art form. Um, uh, sounds like it. Um, what are you gonna name your distillery? Oh, I don't know. Everything Saint Eve because I I like it and. It's, you, you kind of just look it up and it's connected to everything I do. But who knows? I mean, f- 
It's been St. Eve's Elixir. Mm. Nice. Um, but who knows? Maybe by the time I go legal, there'll be too many things. It's like there's a saint. What's the saint? St. Germain. I love St. Germain, but that's a saint thing. And yeah. then and then there's something else that's elixir. And there's something, But who knows? St. Eve's Elixir is something. Totally. And uh, we'll see about going legal, and that'll be exciting. In the meantime, I'm focusing on performing. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. That's so cool. I mean, my God, the breadth of experience that you've done. I mean, all... I like also how it's all sort of gathering-centric, like around parties or around like a beautiful alcohol is meant to be shared. Mm, and, absolutely. you know, like a good party you take your friends to. And I mean, I, I love how you're... You're sort of a, for lack of a better term, a social lubricant. I certainly make social lubricant. <laughs> is, exact, is, is exactly that. It's uh, once you've had too much, then you're just drunk. But correct. But the that's exactly what. In fact, the, what was really fun about the first parties, and I can't remember if I mentioned this in the moth, moth podcast, but I probably did. I was terrified I didn't have enough seating, hmm. and the first thing that happened was that everybody stood up and started talking about their ideas. And I no longer had to really worry about it. Wow. There were chairs, and it was fine, but it wasn't like, oh, no, we're going to get too crowded. It was fine. Wow. In fact, the, the hard part is that nobody will listen to some poor singer because they're all talking. Of course. It just makes you a little self-absorbed. <laughs> <laughs> so I found that it was better to get like a like a tabla player or a sitar oh, player to yeah. join the DJ or maybe have someone go around with hors d'oeuvres or have have like a walk-around performer interact one-on-one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that I was more totally fun. see that. Yeah. Now, rewinding back to sort of everything that you've touched on, I would love to hear, how do you feel New York has changed? Oh. I mean, just because you've seen New York. When did, <laughs> how long have you been here? 30 years. So, Jesus, you have definitely seen a huge transformation. What, wh- how, like... When I first got here, it was the Wild West. People would do lines of cocaine on a bar, and it was not that shocking. You would get a raised eyebrow. Take that somewhere else. <laughs> you know, or something. But, like, just a raised eyebrow, you know. And if you went to the ladies' room, you would say things like, No, I really have to pee. I have, to, I have to actually pee, and somebody would just let you in and maybe do coke around you. It was crazy, the 80s. Um, and I'm sorry that I missed the late 70s. Oh, my God. I got here at 17, so I really couldn't get here much sooner without running away from home. Mm-hmm. But I, I missed out on what that was right before. But I managed to see clubs like Area and Dance You saw the golden, the golden age of New York City nightlife. I think so. I, I missed out on a little bit of that early part. Like, I would have loved to have seen CB's bef- before its demise. And by the time I got here, CB's was, was already a shadow of its former self, mm. just so you know. Uh, although there were, I'm sure, really wonderful shows throughout the years, but that, that blondie era that everyone always mythologizes. I missed Harrah's. I missed, um, I missed a few clubs. But the Peppermint Lounge was around. Danceteria was around. It was the dawn of the limelight. There were some incredible events that happened for sure. And then in 1987, it all shifted with one of the um, economic breakdowns. Oh, right. Of course, the stock market crash. Yes. It was an incredible thing that happened more dramatically than I've seen since. And and we've had some dramatic ones, but that was the one where companies suddenly really moved out. And for the first time since I'd been there, you could actually get an apartment and somebody else would pay the realtor fee. Wow. Like the city emptied out. It was really weird. It was suddenly a ghost town. It just shifted. And the party era was never, ever the same. And it wasn't even that thing where it got too yuppie and lawful until later. Mm -hmm. It was still kind of crazy, but just suddenly wasn't that fun. And there were little pockets of interesting things going on, like the Pyramid Club, like first truly underground stuff. Big clubs started to flourish. And the Peter Gation world started to get bigger with Club USA and the tunnel and Limelight got really big and commercial. The club kids came out. They paid kids to look wild. But it, when, you fir- when I first got here, everyone just wore whatever they wanted. And what was really nice, here's the crux of it. You could talk to somebody who looked very fashionable 
and ask them what they did for a living, and they would say, oh, I, I work in finance. But they knew to go home and change. Yeah. They would they would act like a night like they were experiencing nightlife in nightlife, not like they were about to suddenly turn around and go. And this is my water cooler. I bring it with me everywhere. <laughs> it's always the office wherever I am. <laughs> and that's the main shift: is that now when you go out, everybody looks like they're still at the office, or they look like they're about to mow their lawn. Men often look like they're about to do a little a little yard work. Or they're wearing their little button-down shirt, and I feel like they're about to, you know, I don't know, make a phone call to somebody about a stock or something. They don't look like they're actually present in the nightlife moment. Agreed. And that's the big shift that I saw over time. Why do you think that is? Money. It's just greed. It's all a greed thing because it was also cheaper to live here, and it was also more dangerous. That's always the, the math. Where it's dangerous, artists live, they deal with it, it becomes, there's this golden moment for a short period of time, and then people say, I want to live there, and then they show up and they don't fit in, they force their thing on here, like, I don't like this walk-up, why can't it have an elevator, like, deal. But when I got here, I wanted to be part of New York, I didn't want to change it, I want. I love the idea of it. I, I felt home. I felt really weird in Miami growing up. I was an alien. I got here. I was like, ah, oh, I'm home. Finally. Ah, <laughs> oh, oh, that's better. Where, and I feel that way in New Orleans too. And New Orleans mm. is going through that now where people are showing up and going, this is dirty. And it's like, go home. Get out. <laughs> and, and suddenly that's the yuppification as opposed to people bringing their money to flourish the arts that are there. It's all like, oh, that bar is dirty. I don't like that. That's a dive. I wish I could just have this nice, nice thing. And what's nice about New York is you, there's always been that balance, but it, it's now gotten to like 90%, 10% as opposed to 50-50 yeah. or 70-30. Yeah, no, the scales have definitely tipped. I mean, I just read a couple of days ago that huge, beautiful old bank building. It's covered in graffiti on the corner of uh, Bowery and Prince, I think. Right on the corner. That's somebody's house. Yeah. Well, the this artist bought it back in the 60s, and they only right. live in a part of it, but they've just sold it. <gasps> and I think it was in, on Gothamist, and they were like, and with that, ladies and gentlemen, we can kiss the old New York goodbye. Yeah. Well, they had the whole building for a while. Yeah. Raised uh, their kids there. I was mm -hmm. reading about it. Yeah. And anyway, they've just sold it. I pr I'm probably sure for about 4,000% more than what they bought it for. Um, oh, I think that you're underestimating it. I'm <laughs> sure it's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so it's just, it's interesting to, I mean, New York has always been changing. I mean, ask the Native Americans. <laughs> you know, like looking back on like, you know, the 400 some odd history of Europeans arriving in on the island of Manhattan. I mean, when the Dutch first arrived, you know, 400 and whatever years ago. Um, and each one looks at the other. What are you wearing? <laughs> Did you get the memo to dress? No. Um, it's still like that. Like it is. Like what's with all the you know khaki that's been happening in the last twenty years? I feel that that is fear of standing out. Absolutely. It's fear of being seen for who you really are. And I mean, I feel also like in America specifically, and again, I can only speak about America because it's my primary like point of experience, but there is a real fetish of conformity here. Yes, um, it's, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a new kind of totalitarianism that's slow and insidious and, and it's definitely mall culture. And I really felt it when I was in San Francisco about 15 years ago, it's when it really hit me. And I, and I thought, wow, everybody looks really funky and cute in, in these different neighborhoods. Not in every neighborhood. But for the most part, there's a San Francisco style that's very whimsical yes. that I really appreciate. And I thought, wow, this reminds me of the 80s. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when it was okay to fly your freak flag a bit and you wore black all the time, not because... And this really bothers me. When you wear a lot of black and people say, oh, you're goth, and I just want to hit them, but I don't. Yeah. What I'm thinking, folks is no, what was great about black when I first started wearing a lot of black was I was broke and I could look elegant in a simple, simply without spending too much money, just kind of change your makeup, change your jewelry, maybe 
shift your jacket. You could change things a little bit, maybe change your shoes. And you could go from day to night. You could work your long day and go straight to some interesting thing and not feel like you had to go home and change particularly. You could make it all work. So I guess I kind of took my life into my day. But what was more interesting was to wear something um, more curious, more interesting, more, I mean, more like the London designers. Oh, yeah. Like in London, people aren't afraid to have some style and not feel Absolutely. like a freak. You could be elegant and still be interesting and not necessarily cover yourself in bloody dolls or whatever it is that the extreme might be. <laughs> you know, you can just wear something interesting, have a little have a little flair. And at this point, I think Americans are definitely afraid of flair, but it's such a shame that that's definitely the case in New York. If you have a touch of flair, you get stared at. If you do anything out of the ordinary, if you wear all black, somebody will call you a friggin' goth. And it's so limited and so stupid, and any self-respecting goth would be upset by that because they go to great lengths to be much more interesting than just to wear black. Exactly. So so there it is from both spectrums. Um, while I while I enjoy all different kinds of music and I love the you know the the dark gothy stuff, I like all different kinds of things. And to me, it's more rock and roll my style. Mm-hmm. But rock and roll isn't quite what it used to be either. Women in rock are really women in pop. Agreed. That kind of thing, and that's a whole other rant. But it's just so. Where's where's the shift now, and where can we take it? Um. It, I think it, a lot of it is greed-based because if, if money is coming from the conformist factions, then people will conform because that's where they want to survive. Absolutely. And to be perfectly honest, what rent costs on the island of Manhattan now for newcomers, you have to be earning a shit ton of money or have very wealthy parents to be able to pay for you know a studio that costs $3,600. So what funky, cool thing can you do and be able to pay that and and live there and not just visit or crash on someone's couch? You can shop at Urban Outfitters. Hey, how rebellious. Well, that's even more interesting than True so that. many other, you know. It's just also the way people put it together. There's a lot of cute stuff out there, and it's just the mentality, too. Um, I remember when The Gap had all these interesting people as part of their, their promotion, and... Um, they were basically throwing on a black turtleneck and putting it on an interesting person. But it was interesting sort of how they wore it and, and maybe which trousers or skirt they threw it on with or something. And I, I had to applaud them for that. It, it was a good corporate move to actually suggest you might not necessarily be conformist with their conformist wear. You know, like you, you could make some decisions for yourself, you know. <laughs> um, I don't know if anybody even remembers those ads. But in any case... Um, it's a cultural thing, and there's a lot of homogenization, and the Internet's a fabulous place, but that also means that the smaller individual cultures don't survive like they used to because they used to live like little terrariums in isolation. Yeah. So I don't know. We, now we just have to be conscious about it, I suppose, and make it more because we want to, not because it's just that's what, because that's what's there. That wasn't very good English, whatever. No, I, I, I get it. I totally get it. I mean, in general, I think humans are lazy and they like to be spoon-fed. And now it's much easier yes. to be spoon-fed by corporations Absolutely. than just, well, this is what just goes on in my town and we happen to all like pink <laughs> or whatever. You know, So, so little cultural differences are uh, getting smoothed over by the, by the bigger picture. Yeah, totally. Well, I have to say we're just at about an hour and I could frankly talk to you till the cows come home, so I would like to invite you back <laughs> for a continued discussion. Um, now, where can people find you on El Interwebo? My website is thesaintEve.com, mm-hmm. as in the Saint Eve, all spelled out, T-H-E-S-A-I-N-T-E-V-E.com. And there I link to all the other stuff, the Facebook and the whatnot and the whatever and there's an email there and uh when i have my wits together i even update the pages and such so So amazing are there is there any parting words or parting thoughts that you would like to share before we conclude today's interview that i'm so glad that whatever i've done all my life has led me to meet wonderful people like you thank you 
I love you. Thank you. That really I love you. means a lot. Thank you. And there you have it, folks, my interview with the fabulous Gabrielle Penabaz. You can find her at uh, the Radical Vaudeville, the show she's hosting at the Crane Theater, and she's performing there as Gabrielle St. Evenson. Uh, so do keep an eye out for that. Go to her website. Of course, I don't have it written down in front of me, but uh, I know she just said it. <laughs> so go there. Follow her on Twitter. Go do wild, creative things, and be sure you expose yourself to her art, for you will be all the richer for doing so. All right, everybody. Have a wonderful week, or however long it is, until we exchange these energies again, me speaking, you listening. But be good to you, take care, and uh, lots of love. Bye. Want some lunch? For your ears. Lunch? Legs.